Hello, and thank you for joining us here on Access Asia. I'm William Hildebrandt. Coming up, India's biggest minority finds little reasons to celebrate. Muslims mark with the religious holiday of Eid al-Adha amid a crackdown under the Hindu nationalist ruling party. Islamophobia is on the rise. Pro-democracy activists are impatient in Thailand after beating the military establishment in May's elections. Now they're racing to galvanize support before the parliament votes for prime minister. And we meet an eye surgeon in Nepal, taking on one of the world's highest rates of cataracts by performing over 100,000 operations, giving some of the most vulnerable a new perspective. Eid al-Adha, or the Feast of the Sacrifice, is one of the most important celebrations for Muslims anywhere. But the holiday also creates anxiety for some in the world's biggest country, India. Since Narendra Modi's Hindu Nationalist Party swept to power nearly a decade ago, lynchings and hate speech targeting Muslims have regularly made headlines. Our team from New Delhi has more. In the southeast of New Delhi, these herders have traveled hundreds of kilometers to sell their livestock for the Muslim festival of Eid. But their journey gets more and more dangerous. Extremist Hindu factions defending national vegetarianism target the trucks transporting animals. Ali has been selling his goat in this market for the past 12 years. He now fears for his life. They are beating us in front of the police and nobody does anything. We are afraid that one day we will be surrounded by them and killed. Now we have to move our goats in cars because if we take the trucks, they will detect us. Maybe we should change our jobs because our lives are in danger now. This week, a Muslim man was once again murdered while transporting cattle in the southwest of the country. Fear is omnipresent and is now invading prayer spaces. This open ground was one of the 108 public praying spots allocated to the Muslim community on the outskirts of Delhi. But in 2021, violent protests led by Hindu far-right broke out, preventing Muslims from offering the Friday prayer. Today, only six public spots are left to pray. Harris, a certain community by not allocating the space, and when they're forced to actually look out for open spaces, which is not disturbing anyone, then, you know, fringe elements reach out at those places, hurl abuses, uh, or create an atmosphere of fear amongst them. Since Narendra Modi came to power in 2014, violence against the 200 millions of Indian Muslims has escalated. In this 17th century mosque of Delhi, the community feels the division in the society. There is a fear among us nowadays. Before, everybody, Muslim and Hindu, used to celebrate together. But now, it's not the case anymore. There is some kind of gap between people. In May 2024, India will hold its next elections. Muslims fear a rise of religious hate. In May, a record turnout in Thailand's election saw voters reject the country's military-backed politicians that have dominated politics for years. But now activists are going for the top job. In the coming weeks, Parliament will vote for Prime Minister. And it's unclear if the pro-democracy camp has enough support. Take a look. The three-finger salute, a key symbol of the pro-democracy movement in Thailand. With strength and hope led by opposition wins in last month's election, people have gathered today to celebrate the anniversary of another historic event, the 1932 revolution, ending absolute monarchy, a transition to Thailand's current quasi-democracy. 
This past election shows that we have a democracy, but it's only a partial democracy. Six weeks have passed since the opposition parties want the election, but whether or not they can form a government is still uncertain. One third of the parliament consists of 250 military appointed senators expected to go against the popular vote by blocking the election of an opposition leader as prime minister. For activists like 25 year old Arm, the problem is written into the constitution drafted by the current military government. The problem is the power of the senators. I want the senators to respect the people's vote. A democratic election promised by the military gave hope to millions of ties, yet some remain skeptical. Many of these demonstrators participated in the 2020 student-led protests against the military junta and the royal institution. These vendors sell merchandise with messages from this historic movement. It means uh, to prime minister uh, from the military, get out. If a party abuses its power, whoever it may be, the people of Thailand will surely come out and protest in the streets. Although it's been a month since the election, people here have not given up hope, saying that they do believe that the opposition parties will still be able to form a coalition government. However, their hopes are currently on hold, as the parliament is meant to meet in mid-July to elect the next prime minister. More than two decades after they blew up the ancient Buddhists of Bamiyan statues, the Taliban now opening the site in central Afghanistan to tourists. Yes, a tourist-friendly Taliban. With the Afghan economy in ruins, a cash-strapped group is selling tickets to view the caves where the statues once stood, according to a report by the Washington Post. France 24's Leela Jacinto, a longtime Afghanistan correspondent, joins us for more. Hello to you, Leela. Uh, tell us more about the Taliban's plan and if it will work. Well, this is really very indicative of the ad hoc erratic nature in which the Taliban is governing Afghanistan right now. This opening up uh, of this site, uh, it almost seems dystopian, doesn't it? I mean, the group that blew up the statues, is now selling tickets to watch the destruction, uh, their handiwork, so to speak. But this is entirely a pragmatic move, uh, not very thought of. They they don't have the money, so they are selling tickets. It's the equivalent of 57 cents uh, to, to tourists, which is, of course, just domestic tourists. There's no thought behind this. There's no reckoning of the loss of cultural heritage, of what happened to the site, nothing of the sort. There's just simply simply selling tickets uh, to sell this, uh, you know, to, to earn some revenue. And it's, it's also indicative of, of uh, you know, the, the, the erratic nature. You, you can see it in this, in this reporting by the Washington Post because, you know, you have a real mix of opinions. You know, on the one hand, you have a Taliban soldier saying, yes, it was a bad thing that these ancient statues were blown up. But then on the other hand, you have the governor of Bamiyan province, where this is, saying that, uh, you know, promising that he's going to protect historical sites, but at the same time saying the decision to blow them up uh, for 20, more than 20 years ago was a good decision. So the lack of cultural sensitivity is also incredible. You know, the Taliban is still not reaching out to minority groups. It's still uh, very much sidelining the Tajiks, the Hazarats. It's a Pashto ethnic group. And in many respects, it's, it is really a throwback of what it was more than 20 years ago. A lot of people hoped that they would have learned the lesson. Uh, of the past, but this really doesn't look like it. Uh, you covered the Buddhas of Bamiyan since 2001. What's the significance of this site, past, present, and future? 
well, it's incredibly uh, significant. You know, these statues were a fusion of Greek, Indian and Persian uh, art movements. You know, this is really, it stands at the juncture of the Silk Roads. And so so this mix of uh, influences, these statues have gazed out uh, at caravans plying the Sil Silk Road for a hundred and, uh, for 1500 years. Uh, and I was covering Afghanistan, uh, you know, when the Taliban were in power under their first reign. I was not inside Afghanistan. It was very difficult to get in in those days. And there were a lot of reports that this is what the Taliban was planning. And initially, there was a sense of disbelief. You know, no, they would not do that. I mean, th this is a very important site. Uh, uh, but they did. Uh, and those reports started trickling in because they did not manage to blow it up in one go. It took around two weeks to do that. They started shooting it with anti-aircraft guns, with artillery, and they couldn't do it because these are massive statues from the 6th century. And in the end, they just dynamited it. And I remember the sense of utter shock when that happened. Um, and I interviewed a Taliban spokesman at that time. And, you know, he's he simply did not get it. He did, just did not understand. He told me, you know, why is the international community making such a big noise about stones uh, when Afghan people are suffering? Uh, you know, and he didn't seem to be able to tell me why the destruction of stones would help Afghan people. Then I, I looked at the site again. Uh, and, you know, there were many issues at play. Should we preserve the site in its destroyed state? Should we rebuild it? But now all work has stopped because NGOs are not able to work in that area anymore. All right, Leela, thank you very much. Leela Jacinto, French 24's uh, foreign editor. In some places, people may take eyesight for granted, not in Nepal. It has one of the world's highest rates of cataracts and subsequent blindness. But one surgeon has been working hard to change that. Emerald Maxwell has more. Maya has just had cataract surgery. For the first time in years, and the poorly farmer can see. Maya was one of more than 200 people to benefit from eye surgery today at a treatment camp in a small Nepali village. It takes around seven minutes for surgeon Sanduk Ruit to restore their sight. He's performed the operation more than 130,000 times. But seeing the patient's reaction after he removes their bandages never gets old. Every time uh, that makes me giggle and uh, sensations travel inside me. Nepal has one of the highest rates of cataracts, where the lens of the eye slowly clouds over, leading to blindness. The condition cripples the lives of people here, many of whom are subsistence farmers. Dr. Ruit travels around the country to treat them. You can see how uh, eye care is so difficult and how health care would be difficult, how education would be difficult, how the livelihood would be so difficult. This is not uh, 19th, 18th century or 19th century, you see, so they deserve to live a better life. The surgeon is backed by Tej Kohli, a UK-based Indian entrepreneur once jailed in the United States for mail fraud. Kohli expects to spend at least $100 million on the project this decade, but it's small fry for the multi-millionaire. I think it's a crime for some people like us not to do more and uh, do as many as we can to end this needless blindness. I mean, it costs me $50 per surgery. The two men's foundation trains up new eye surgeons too and aims to restore the vision of 500,000 people worldwide by 2030. 
And finally, it's not quite the fountain of youth, but all people in South Korea have become a year or two younger. A new law aligns the nation's two traditional age-counting methods with international standards. In one system, uh, children were age one at the time of birth. In the other system, people's ages changed on January 1st instead of on their birthdays. The complicated systems created disputes over anything from insurance payouts to voting age and determining eligibility for government assistance programs. That's it for this edition of Access Asia. Thank you for watching, and please stay tuned to France 24.